0: This last section in Philippians chapter 4 and over these past months we've looked at two important themes in the Christian life The first addressed how to follow Jesus in a way that uh, allows us to experience the dynamic nature of the Christian life Embracing the rhythms of gospel community and mission Really want to challenge you to listen to those messages online if you have not They are pretty formational and foundational to the things we are talking about over these next weeks Second rhythm began in chapter four, and we reread the framework this morning that, that these ideas are coming from. Uh, it's in Ephesians, excuse me, Philippians chapter four, where Paul tells us to really focus on, to dwell on what is good and noble and right. He's talking about the things of God, and he's telling us that in order to find peace in life, in order to fully press into the fullness that Jesus offers us on his cross, in order to really embrace the Christian life in all of its fullness. We have to learn to train our hearts and minds to focus and dwell on the things that are of God. This has been the second shift, the second theme we've addressed. The first truth really taught us how to experience joy. The latter, according to Paul, is sort of how we remain in it. And those are two very important poles to think about in life. It's one thing to have joy on Tuesday, right? It's another thing to have it on Thursday, a few days afterwards. So there's the ability to experience joy in the Christian faith, And then the rhythms we embrace to actually maintain it in our lives. There are certain things under heaven that we must do, certain thoughts we must have, we must fixate our heart and our mind on. And then there's obviously the grace of God working in all these ways to bring about this stuff in our life. And so over the past weeks, we've talked about how when we really believe, two major themes, God is good and God is great. God is a good God. He cares for us. God is a great God, so great that he's actually in control of the substance and circumstances of our lives that we no longer need to turn to anything else in life to find peace and joy. So the number one way we can dwell in joy is to recognize the ultimate source of it, our Father in Heaven. So today we introduce another important joy-producing truth. It's another reality we want to embrace about God, and it's a it's an idea or a theology I've taught on a handful of times here in this room, and will continue to for the rest of our days. You've hopefully derived the theme from the worship we've had this morning. Today we're looking at another theme. It's when you really begin to understand and dwell in the truth that God is a glorious God. That God is a God who is glorious and consequently worthy of our glory. Now, each one of these things we've talked about has had sort of a net positive effect in our lives, meaning when we truly believe, dwell on a truth about God, it has the ability to, to bring about a certain type of fruit in our life. And if we believe that God is glorious, one of the things that it allows us to do is to not be afraid of anything in life. And in particular, I want to talk about what is perhaps the most pressing thing we often are afraid of in life, and that is other people. Now, work with me this morning, because I'm not saying you're walking around saying, like, I'm I'm fearful of people. But our emotions, our actions, our expectations, the opinions of people in the Scripture oftentimes create this concept of what the Bible calls fear. What is it we fear in life? And so today from Proverbs, rooted in Philippians, obviously, but in Proverbs, we're going to talk about the difference between living in such a way where we are ruled by the fear of other people, where we essentially are living to glorify people, the fear of man, the Bible calls it, Or we learn to live a life that is freed and full. There no longer is anxiety, or at least it's to a minimum, because we have learned to fear the Lord and to understand and see His His glory. Two very different ways of living life. And there is a glory choice here. Like most of the the messages we have on Sunday, there is sort of a a root choice we have to make when we hear these truths and embrace them or choose not to embrace them. Today, as we move through this message, you'll have a glory choice to make. And it's one that really matters. What you fear in life, think about this. When you think about what you glorify, when you think about, maybe just take this a step, back it up a step. When you think about what you are afraid of in life, it is almost always a direct reflection of what you choose to worship and glorify in life. So if you're always worried about the bottom falling out of your life, or a certain relationship in your life, or, you know, attaining success in your life, or the health and wealth of your children, all of these are good things, right? But if they, if they cripple you or paralyze you or cause you to function in ways less full than the way God desires for you, they can potentially become fear issues. And fear issues are things that actually are glory issues. What we fear most in life is what we will worship and glorify in life. And what tends to happen here is it makes you what you are. It makes you who you are. What you glorify in life makes you who you are. Now, in our study today, I want us to see how knowing who to fear in life especially if we understand the nature of Jesus in our life, creates a life defined by peace, hope, joy, and purpose. There is something that Paul promises us in Philippians 4. He says, listen, if you want to find peace, dwell on that which is good. Put into practice the things I have told you. Follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. And living like this makes perfect sense. You should think about this. If we truly believe God is a good God, we've already discussed this three weeks ago. If we truly believe God is a great God and in control last week, then what should happen is as we proclaim these truths, they become more than verbal proclamations. They actually become proclamations that really matter in our hearts. We should naturally be the kind of people who have peace and joy in our heart. Not perfectly, but that's the fruit that deeply believing these truths begins to produce. We should be a people who want to make God very big in our life, to glorify Him and Him alone. That does not mean that we don't have other priorities, other things that matter, other things that we care about, other things that we devote our affections to. There's no naivety or idealism in what I'm saying. It just says that when we look at the whole of our life, there is one person above all that we wish to glorify in our every thought, deed, and action. And that shapes every other thing we do, every other thing we have in life. Now, unlike the first two God clauses we talked about, God is good and God is great... At the beginning of each message, I introduced how these are deeply profound truths. God is a good God, right? That's a, that they become sort of colloquial statements. They become trite statements if we're not careful. They become trivial. There is a danger in not understanding that stuff deeply enough. There's a similar rhythm I want to talk about today when, it, when we talk about glory. And whenever we talk about a substantial theological word in our church, whether it is sin or grace, uh, the big words, in this case, glory. These are words that are very common in the Christian vernacular. But oftentimes we as people maybe don't fully understand the depth and the gravity of what they mean. So I want to assume nothing this morning. Many of you, I'm sure, understand what glory is. Some of you know how to glorify the Lord. But I want to make sure we have a good refresher this morning on what that actually means. Because we don't want to proceed in a message like this, or in our lives, having these words in our heads, but actually not understanding the significance they should have in our lives. That is a serious problem. And in the case of our study today, God is, you know, to be glorified. That's not necessarily a trite statement. I don't hear that a lot from people. It is a statement that I think is often very much confused. So it creates a different problem. And it's a problem that's going to impede our ability to dwell on and experience the joy of Jesus we have been trying to study over these past weeks. And here's why, think about this. Here's sort of my thesis this morning. If God is truly glorious, right? And the point of this sermon is hopefully to help us see this, then we should naturally be the kind of people who live our lives in light of that glory. When you have seen, tasted, experienced, and understand glory, we should want to have more of that in us. We should want that action to be stronger in our lives. In other words, when you turn your eyes upon Jesus, you'll find fear and anxiety have no choice but to fade away. That's what we just sang. And that is exactly what I want to talk about today. So let's jump in and look at this first truth. It's the major one we'll look at this morning. It's a recap of my introduction. What you fear most in life reveals what you choose to glorify. And for many people, that is other people. There are lots of things we can glorify, but the fear of man is perhaps the most common. And I'll tell you why. Because we are surrounded by men and women. No matter where we go, we are rubbing shoulders with people. And so it makes sense that one of God's, the greatest form of God's creation, us, can actually be one of the things that cripples us most in life if we're not mindful of this truth. So before we go any further, it's crucial that we spend a few minutes trying to understand what we mean by glory. I'll give you a practical definition, then a story. Because glory is a very religious word. It's often misunderstood amongst the people of God, and it is very much misunderstood in our culture. It's an interesting word that has multiple applications. But as is true in the Christian faith, grace, for example, is a word that has multiple applications. But when we apply it to the context of Scripture and talk about it in the context of the Christian faith, it has a very particular meaning. It is something Jesus shows us. It is something he applies to our life. The same is true with glory. There's a a wide range that that word has in culture and even in the mind of the Christian at times. But in the Bible, God's glory has a very particular meaning. And I've given you this definition before. It simply means, I think the best way to describe it, is it, it's sort of like God having a weighty or significant presence in a person's life. When Moses is, is giving glory to God, when he comes down off of the mountain and he's glowing, it is because there has been an absolute profound contact with God. Something has happened before God. See, God was so weighty and so significant in his life that it altered his being permanently and forever. He's a different person. This is what it means to, to glorify God. It's what it means to recognize God as a God worthy of glory. He, to glorify God simply means that he has a very prominent place in your life. Now, let me give you a personal example of this, of, of how glory can be used in other contexts, but it's the same rude idea. One of the best examples I have of this in my own life, and there are lots of them, uh, is what it looks like when I had my, my first child. And some of you are saying, like, what do you mean you had a child? Your wife had a child. I get that, but I was part of the process, a very small way and I was in the hospital the whole time. So whenever I use the pronoun we, I think my wife is working kids check-in today, so I'll use it a lot today. Uh, If she was in here, I'd probably change it up. When when we had our first child, right? My son Aiden turned 11 in March. And if you've had a child, this will, some of this will make sense to you. If not, think about this. Uh, There's a big lead up to having your first child and it's filled with a slew of emotions and expectations. And I can distinctly remember the Sunday, we were living in New Orleans, it was a Sunday afternoon that we took my wife to the hospital to deliver my son. And just before we did, we had, I had worshiped that morning. I had to preach for my church. I told them I was going to see them in a week because I was going to have a baby that day. And we went to our rented apartment in New Orleans, and we shot this video. It was kind of a cool thing. This was before you even had video cameras on phones. We actually used like a real camera, and we shot a video of my wife and I talking to my unborn son like a day before he was actually about to be born. He was in the womb, and this was the last day he was going to be in the womb. Next day, he's with us. And then we left there and drove to the hospital. And after an extended period of labor, we actually had my son. It was it was over 24 hours. Long story of what happened there. I'll spare you the details. But it was a pretty long labor period. And the moments just after having a baby are pretty hectic. If you've been in that room... You know that, uh, especially if you've had a C-section, which is what happened with us, uh, the medical team rushes the baby away to clean, in our case, him up immediately. They are making sure mom is stable and okay. There's a lot of medicine and science going on in that room to make sure that before we start holding babies and cutting umbilical cords and all that stuff, everybody's healthy and good. And so that's what happened. Aiden is delivered, and, and the, the medical crew is scattering, doing everything they do. And then just before they remove him from the delivery room, like literally, they call me over. They're tending to my wife. Uh, One of the doctors and nurse call me over and they say, hey, would you like to cut his, uh, his cord? And I did. And they said, we have to take him away to do what we've got to do, but we've cleaned him up enough. Would you like to hold him? And I was like, no, I'll just wait. And I was like, no, of course I'd like to hold him. That's the dumbest question ever. You know, give me my baby. This is like my first son. I want to hold him. And so they handed me Aiden, right? Anthony Aiden. And he was, a, he was a big baby, 10 pounds. I've shared this with you before. 10 pounds, 08 ounces. And when they handed him to me, something happened. You know, this is a moment you prepare for mentally. You think about it. You see it on TV. But then it sort of happens to you, and it changes. It was a sensation unlike anyone I've had before. It was true with all of my three children. And when I looked at him, there were two immediate things that came to my mind. They, they had handed him to me. And the first was the obvious one. I just thought, this is the biggest kid I've ever seen in my life. He was, he was massive. Uh, and the second, I, I'm telling you, this is just what my mind recalled, is he was purple. I couldn't explain it. Like, he was like a big grape. And I remember thinking, um, every, everything that I've seen on TV is wrong. Like, there's nothing right about the depiction of childbirth on television shows and what actually happens. I was holding a big grape, right? Now, in that brief moment, it, it, I mean, it was awkwardly beautiful because I had never hold, held a chi- my child before. It's the first time ever. In that brief moment... I had with him, I literally had two minutes with him before they took him away. I was just enamored. That's what happened. And I can honestly say that I was emotionally overcome by the moment, spiritually overcome by the moment. The weight of that event really really got the best of me. Uh, and I remember looking at him, and I literally said this. I didn't have this scripted or anything. It just kind of came out. I remember looking at him, and I told him how excited I was that he was here. And I said, I don't really know you at all. And I have just met you, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that I love you in very profound ways. I, I could, that's all that came out of me. And I believe those words were directly from God. And then the nurse took my baby away and they had to go to the baby incubator room and get them all cleaned up and do what they did. And then a few hours later, I was able to see him. And that day I've never forgotten to this day. I mean, the, the images of that, that day and that sensation are still very real to me. Now, why am I telling you this? Let me kind of explain the point here. That moment was one of the most glorious I've had in my life. This is an example of glory. And it's hard to fully explain this, but it's the kind of thing that when I look back on, it it is very weighty. It is incredibly significant. And if you've you've all had moments like this in life, uh, having a child, other things, getting your first real job, whatever they are, there are some things that happen in life that are so weighty and significant that everything else begins to fade away, like we're just saying. The moments are so moving that we sort of stop in our tracks. We are captivated, completely enamored by whatever it is we are going through, in a good way. And it's in those moments with my son that I I literally reoriented my whole life around his birth. There was nothing else in my head at that moment. And that's not a normal thing for me. There's usually a lot of things in my head. But there was this tunnel vision of what was in front of me at that moment. Nothing else really mattered. And in all those moments, everything starts to fade away. And consequently, it permanently marked and changed me. My wife, too. Now, this is the type of experience that the Bible refers to when it speaks of God being a God worthy of all of our glory. It, it's it's a, the same type of emotion, physical and spiritual, that happens before the Lord. And so when a person really understands what God's glory is in their life, it should have a very similar effect. It should have actually a more profound effect because that relationship far supersedes all of our relationships. It should stop us to a certain degree. It should cause us to pause and reflect in deep ways. It should cause a person to be so moved by who God is, right? And this is what we've been talking about. Because God is something good, great, today glorious. There is a fruit that happens in our life. There's a, there's a positive reaction, uh, an answer at the end of that equation that begins to change us. When you really do believe God is good, when you really do believe God is gracious, when you really do believe that God loves and cares for us, when you really do believe that God saw the sin of the world and put his son on the cross for it, when you really believe that, it changes you at the core of your being. It has to change you at the core of your being. Scripture tells us a spiritual metamorphosis takes place in life. We, we come out of the cocoon, and we become something we never could have been without Jesus. All of the clutter in life fades away, and you start to develop a focus that at one point in life we weren't able to have. A focus on who God is On what he means to us. And the way he is directing the steps of our life. His presence in our life becomes very significant. Very weighty. So much so. That you start to orient your life around his presence and purposes. Glory is not just an emotion in a room. Glory when you really experience it changes you. And it causes you to be and look more like your father in heaven. It is a glory fixation. I've used that word before. And if you think about it. This really makes perfect sense. This is sort of the high bar of the Christian life. If God really is all the things we sing about each week, if he really is all the things that we talk about each week, in this room, in your community groups, coffee with people, if God is who God says he is, and the essence of the Christian faith affirms this, we try to affirm this every week, he is our creator, he is our sustainer, he is a sovereign God, he is a just God, he is a merciful God. He is our Savior. If we believe that stuff, if we believe he has died for us, I want you to think about this. How can we see him any other way? The answer is we really shouldn't be able to see him any other way. But oftentimes we do see him in ways that really are less glorious than he deserves. Like at the end of that story I just gave you was, you know, I, I had my child and then I didn't care or I was numb to the reality of it, or it was a a mediocre response, you would say, man, the the reality of what just took place there is incongruent with how you see it, how you're acting, how you're behaving. Something would be out of sorts there. The same is true when we understand our walk with Christ. And that's really where the rubber meets the road in our talk today. Because what you choose to glorify in your life, the people or the things you choose to make weighty and significant, they reveal what you worship. They reveal what matters most to you in every way. They define who you are and they identify what you derive joy from in life. And Jesus tells us time and time again, there is only a singular person worthy of this kind of glory. It is his father. That glory defines all other glories. Even the story I just gave you, I don't know that we can fully appreciate parenting, child rearing, the gift of a child, if we don't understand the origin of that gift. That glory defines all the other glories in life. Now, this said... As clear as this is, as, as biblically prevalent as it is, people are notoriously known for glorifying things in their lives that are not God like they are God. I've said this every week. We are notoriously known for looking to things, hoping they'll treat us like God will, when they can't. And one of the most common and dangerous things we glorify like that, it isn't a thing. It is actually other people. Now in the Bible, living for the glory of other people In your life like this is called living for the fear of man. It's a different kind of fear, right? It's a different application of the fear, we might say. Living for the fear of man, think about this, glorifying, living to glorify in unhealthy ways other people means you've gotten gotten to a place in your life where you're no longer ultimately orienting your life around who God is. Whatever we glorify, we will orient life around. And so when this happens, when we start to essentially put people on the pedestal of our Father in heaven, we're going to start to orient life around those people. And so the fear of man teaching isn't an entirely bad thing. I want to preface this before I move on. When I'm, what I'm saying here is not that we should not care about people. We should not respect people. We should not be humble and serve people. We should not listen to people. Those, that's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying, though, this, this is, that's all good, is that if you start to make the glory swap, if you start to then lessen the voice of your God and put those people over his voice, that is actually not a good thing at all. It's the analogy I use all the time. It's when good desires become ultimate desires. And the only ultimate thing we should pursue in life is a robust relationship with Jesus. What happens here is when when we get these fear paradigms confused, we make the glory swap. And you will likely, especially if you're a people pleaser, you'll start giving the, the varied expectations and opinions of your peers a greater voice in your life than you are your good, great, and glorious God. The three messages we've just talked about. The third one we're in the middle of today. Living under the pressure of the fear of man like this is a joy robber. It's something you cannot dwell on, according to Paul. You have to know the role of people in life. And we are a church that really values community. We have a very high role here. But that community is shaped by an understanding of who God is through the gospel. When these paradigms are disconnected, there's an issue, a big one. And it often creates an illness in us. It's a people-pleasing complex. And what that, what that creates in our lives when it's left unchecked is a constant attempt to please people who will probably never, ever be able to be fully pleased by us. That's why Proverbs 29, 25 puts it this way. Paul says in Philippians, dwell on what is good and noble and right. Put into practice the things that will bring you peace. Here's the thing that will bring you peace. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of human opinion disables. Trusting in God protects you from that. Opinions have a place, but if they're on Christ-like opinions or opinions that are trumping the, the verbal proclamations of God in your life, there's going to be a problem. The opposite of what this verse teaches is that it will disable us. And let me give you an example of how crippling this can be. Uh, it's, it's one I've actually shared before with you, not because I don't have other examples, but because this is the most profound reality that I have seen in my, in my two decades of pastoring. It stands out as a painful archetype example of what we're talking about today. Uh, If you know me, you know that I was a youth pastor for almost eight years before I was a, a, a lead pastor. And during those years, I did a great deal of counseling with teenagers, lots of counseling, trying to find their way in life. That's a space in life where it's sort of par for the course, right? Looking and trying to figure out who you are. And a common theme that would surface with them is they often felt that they could not please their parents. The teen years are some of the most, they're prone anyways, to conflict. So this is sort of a common thing you hear from teens. And if you are a parent... Uh, kind of fast forwarding the paradigm we talked about infancy a few moments ago and now we'll talk about adolescence you know that this statement can be true there actually can be times where we as parents look and say we need to change we've got to grow up here like we're, we're not doing this well that's part of parenting but there are also times when we parent that we're dealing with confused children and that's when we have to parent so this statement I'm making here a, a kid who is really feeling like he could not please his parents uh, that can go one of two ways and it takes some dialogue to figure out which way it goes But in this case, it went the way he had said. The more we talked, the more we got engaged with the family, the more we saw there was a really unhealthy thing going on here. There was sort of an emotionally abusive dynamic he was growing up in. And he literally could never do anything to earn the respect and love of his parents. And this began to shape him. Now, the student I talked to started, it it was kind of funny watching what happened first. It went from an emotional crisis to then this innate desire to please, meaning it was sort of like the circus dog. Anything this kid could do to try to earn the affection of his dad, he tried to do it. But he couldn't get the affection of his dad. And then it started to shape him in deeply negative ways, more negative ways. So please hear me here. Much like the fear of of, of the opinion of people, input in life, pleasing and honoring your parents is a good thing. Don't hear me saying anything to the contrary here. Especially, in this case, if you're a dad who loves Jesus and lives for the glory of Jesus, it is a godly desire. If you are a son or a daughter, or you have a son or a daughter, it is a godly desire to raise a kid in a way that honors Jesus, and for a kid to respect his or her parents. That is a good thing. However, this also can be a problematic thing. It can become an ultimate thing if we're not careful. And this is where the error was in this relationship. In our conversations, I would hear regularly that, that I, could, I can't do anything. I cannot do anything to have this person love me. That's what it turned into. I cannot please my dad. And then it hit, it hit kind of a, a, a very significant point. This is where the dam broke. One point in conversation, we were all together, the kid said, I feel like I am loved more for what I do than actually being your son. Now, that is a place, that's a statement you never want to hear somebody ever say. That's like you're right on the line of going one or two directions. And in an effort to cope with that rejection, because this, this persisted, uh, he eventually gave up. It's, it's like you could plot it on a life chart, what happens when a person reaches this point. The kid just gave up on the relationship. And he got to the place where he had been rejected so much that no longer was pleasing the desire. It's sort of like a defense mechanism that came up in him. He started to harden himself. And this insatiable, once insatiable desire to please then turned into an insatiable desire to rebel. And that is what the next chapter, chapter of life looked like there. That's what happened. It went from pleasing to pure rebellion. There's no more pleasing anymore. And now it's just like complete rejection and get away from me. The pattern of behavior is something very common to people who live for the glory of others like this. Over time, it can lead you to feel like you're not good enough. It can lead you to be sorrowful, to question who you are. It can lead to um, amazing amounts of frustration. It can really rob you of your esteem, your joy, your spiritual esteem. Because we were never meant to fear other people like this. We were never meant to glorify other people like this. The truth is, when it comes to glory... Is we cannot handle that, we cannot handle glorifying anything else in life besides Jesus, because only jesus is is mature enough and has the integrity enough to not take advantage of that. We can never try to provide uh, or or place a significance on another person in the way we should Jesus. Ultimately, if we live like this, whether this is a parent, a friend, a peer, a sibling, whatever it is, you will live your life defined. By, by the shifting expectations of people all around you. Your life is a constant moving target and you can never hit a bullseye. And this is a terrible way to live because you will eventually get down on yourself when you realize you can't please everyone and no one can live up to everyone's expectations. Trying to do so will make you an insecure wreck. And compounding the issue, this is sort of the heart of the story I just told you, is that there actually are going to be times in our lives where people expect of us things that are flat out wrong or maybe even selfish. They're going to demand glory from you. And it creates this impasse that you can't get around. You you have to navigate it well. Because what happens is some people might actually, they might demand a glory from you that actually glorifies them and does not glorify Jesus. They might place expectations on you or your life, what you're doing, who you are, that actually don't honor God. They they don't even affirm the God is statements we're talking about. God is them in life and they expect you to be something. And what that winds up doing is causing you, the best case scenario here, if you cave to this fear, the best case scenario is you might please that person for a, so- a short time. You might jump through the hoop enough to earn some type of favor. But the best case scenario is that it will be at the expense of becoming, uh, not becoming the person God wants you to eternally be. You temporarily trade a character, a, a, a mark of who you are, which is likely going to fade because what I found over time is that this type of person can't ever be pleased. Once you jump through the hoop, there's another one. You will trade permanently and eternally becoming who God wants you to be, glorying in him for what is likely going to be a temporal and maybe even abusive glory in another person's life. So at this junction, we have a choice to make. I introduced it to you in the introduction. We have a glory choice to make. What is it we fear? When we talk about being peace. Or having peace in our hearts, being peaceful in our interactions, what Paul says in Philippians. It's going to come one of two ways. We're either going to fear man, we're going to strive to have peace there in unhealthy ways, or we will fear God. And fearing God is the beginning of understanding what it means to glorify God. It's funny, the word fearing God is used a lot in the Bible. And it's often connected to a more meaningful and robust understanding of who God is in our lives. This leads me to the second truth I want to share with you today. We cannot fear other people. And we often do. And if you want to overcome the fear of man in your life, you must learn to dwell in the fear of God. You, much like you make a glory swap, you have to recognize what, what is worth fearing in life. So let's look at Proverbs 29, 25 again. Paul says in Philippians, dwell, right? If you want peace, dwell on these things that are good, noble, and true. These God is statements are talking about. Proverbs tells us the fear of human opinion disables. Trusting in God protects you from that. Protects you from that. Now, before we go any further, much like glory, let's take a moment to define what we mean and do not mean by the word fear. Because in most situations, if I were to say, hey, be afraid of something, we don't naturally prescribe something healthy or good to that. But there's a contrarian understanding of this in Scripture. This is one of those sayings that requires us to really lay down what we understand about fear, frankly, and embrace a godly understanding of fear. When we talk about fatherhood in this room, too, God as Father, we often make this same claim, right? Oftentimes, our understanding of fatherhood shapes how we understand the Father in heaven. When we talk about fear... I don't know what our experiences are, in detail anyways, but the word fear is typically not a a positive word. But in the Bible, the fear of the Lord often creates other things in us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? That means understanding who God is actually enables you to understand true knowledge. In this case, uh, being fearful not of people but of the Lord allows us to have healthy relationships, enabling in the right sense relationships. So for, for fear... It's sort of important to understand that your backdrop with this word is going to shape how you understand fearing the Lord. What I'm saying is is your opinions or understandings of manhood, of fatherhood, of fear can really influence how you understand the statement I'm making today, the statement Proverbs is making. And most commonly, I find people equate fearing the Lord with, with discipline, heavy, heavy-handed discipline from God. And I know this was the case for me when I first became a Christian It's the case for a lot of people. They just apply fear, what they understand, abusive fear at times, to to God. And it creates this warped understanding. How can God be good and we be afraid of him? Well, I hope to clear up some of this right now. I had a very earthly understanding of fear. I thought it meant because God is a mighty God, a powerful God. We believe these things. A God who holds our lives in his hands. That we should be afraid of him in the unhealthy way. In other words, because God is more powerful than me, I need to know my role and place before him. Now, I want to say that that statement is essentially true. We should know our place before God. But if you think fearing the Lord or loving the Lord is knowing your role before him, you're going to misunderstand the way God cares about you. While all this is essentially true. God has proven time and time again the way he treats us, the life of his son Jesus, Even verses like Proverbs, they affirm that fearing God doesn't mean we need to walk on eggshells with him. It doesn't mean that we need to, you know, cower under a chair because God is unstable, unpredictable, and abusive. That is not what fear means here. He is not a God who is inclined towards irration in his thought or actions. He doesn't have a hair-trigger emotional reaction to the world. He doesn't lose it on Tuesday and smote a nation. He doesn't do that. If he's smoting something, it's with purpose and thought, right? All of this stuff, all of this unhealthy fear stuff is what we're trying to stay away from here when we talk about God. Because Scripture doesn't ever tell us to fear God because of an abusive hand. Scripture tells us a lot to fear God, but never because of unhealthy or abusive relationship paradigms. Rather, fearing the Lord is training our hearts to have a very big view of God's expectations. This is what fearing God means. It means you actually get to the place in your life where you begin to properly understand who God is you, it's sort of like fire. Let me put it this way, right? If you think about fire, fire is something that we should be afraid of and also not be afraid of. Fire raging in the forest, be very afraid of, right? Fire in your backyard, same thing, same element. We're roasting marshmallows over it and our kids are throwing leaves in it and we're cooking hot dogs, right? Why is it that we, we can be so afraid of something in one sense, but then be so enamored with it in another sense it's because there's a healthy respect for fire you would never say hey kids there's a blaze burning up on 44 let's go roast some marshmallows there's a problem with the way we see the fire right but we would say in a controlled environment let's enjoy the fire it's cold outside which happens four days a year here let's enjoy the fire right it's the same sort of idea here God's expectations his affirmations his grace in our life what I'm saying is is we fear God by having a much higher view of him and a much smaller view of man a proportionate view of man especially when man's expectations contradict the aforementioned. It's learning to trust what God says about you more than anything else in life. It's not that other people don't matter. They have to matter. That's part of what being a Christian is. You cannot love Jesus without loving people. You can't. There's, uh, you're missing a cylinder in the Christian life. It's firing improperly if we're off base here. And this is especially true if they are God-honoring people. It's just that they can never, even God-honoring people, can never matter as much as your Father in heaven So to fear the Lord is to love, it's to trust, and to respect your God above all else in your life. You can fear fire, but also love it. You can. You can enjoy it, but be mindful of its power and its presence and to respect it. That's what this means. It's a desire to make God big again in your life. The scale of fear has to tip one way. And if you want to have peace, the kind Paul talks about in Philippians... You have to live in light of the grandeur, goodness, grace, the long-suffering and devout love the Father in heaven has for you. It is to recognize, since the Lord is your salvation, right? If God has brought you life, then you don't need to fear anything in life. Not even death. It's living, knowing your life. Nobody can prescribe a greater worth to you or take it away. So fearing God simply means, don't think of this as an abusive, kind of cowering relationship before God. A God who takes joy in hurting you. It's more heart posture of loving and respecting your God because he cares for you deeply and he wants the best things for you in life. Now here's how I want to close this morning. Um, I want to share with you, and it's an expectation list, and I shared this with you in 2015, so I'm sure you all remember this. Uh, If not, I'd like you to take pictures of this. Uh, If you want to write it down, that's fine. If you want us to email you this during the week, it's great. I don't want to leave today without you actually having some really serious questions that you can answer during our response time and through the week, if you so wish, and I hope you do, that actually can help you understand, sort of diagnose what you fear. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. As we close, I want to give you some solid diagnostic questions you can ask yourself to identify whether you fear God or man. And this is part of a larger book uh, from a gentleman named Ed Welch. He wrote a great book called When People Are Big and God Is Small, well worth putting on your list of reading. And he talks about it one section in the book uh, places or markers that show us whether or not we have a fear of man issue. And I'm just going to read you his questions. They're not mine. They're his. But I hope you will meditate on them for the rest of our time this morning and certainly through the week. They'll be behind me. We'll read through them you know, at a, at a fairly decent pace. The first is an interesting one. Do you have a history of struggling with peer pressure, which is really a euphemism for the, for the fear of man? In other words, are you, are you peer pressure is obviously being shaped into things you don't want to be, Because you're afraid of what's going to happen if you don't bow to the need or expectation of another. Do you do what you do in your life and in your church, in your work, wherever, because you want to please God or your peers? Ultimately, whose affirmation are you seeking? Do you always need something from a spouse or a friend? You need respect. You need to be affirmed. You need to be heard. Do you struggle with esteem issues? Are good days and bad days bound up in what people do or do not think about you? In other words... A person's actions or responses to you dictate what your actions and responses in life will be. When they're good with you, you're good. When they're not good with you, you're not good. Are you anxious that people might find out about the real you if you opened up to them? Do you make decisions in light of what other people might think? Again, that can be a healthy thing, but in this case, he's not talking about it from the the healthy angle. He's saying you might know something else is better, but you're going to do it just because you are fearful. Of, of, of losing the, the, the pleasure of a person who might even be taking advantage of you. Here's a big one. Do you tell white lies to make yourself look better in front of your peers? White lies are different than big lies. They're both lies, but white lies are sort of like subtle nuances of truth that puff yourself up. Are you jealous of other people, their status, their possessions? Do you avoid people? This is an interesting way to look at it. Avoid people, have minimal contact with people, Even hermits, he says, are dominated by the fear of man. Meaning, you don't even get to these other questions. You just stay away from people altogether. Or you might, you know, in the the most basic way possible, interact with people because you sort of have to. But you don't enjoy people in the way Jesus enjoys people. Are you easily embarrassed? Do you constantly compare yourself with other people? Or maybe you've gone the other way. Are you so independent? You don't really care what God or other people say. You live your life for the fear of you. You don't fear man or God. You fear you. You don't care what God says or what other people say. You're just going to do what you want to do. Now, if some or all of these sound like you, and I suspect to varying degrees we all struggle with some of these on some levels, because we're all people, then let God's grace lead you to a place where you stop fearing man and start fearing him. The way to do that is by fighting this knee-jerk reaction of, of, and it might even be an unthought-out reaction, of what we're seeking approval from in life of what we're glorifying in life. You will never be able to answer those questions until you first ask, what is it you are afraid of in life? What is it you most glorify in life? When the urge arises to glorify something that is not God in a way that like it is God, you have to know whatever it is you're trying to invest in, there's going to be an issue there. The best way to glorify what is in your life on a peer level is to glorify God first because you'll have spiritual clarity in how to handle those situations. Who deserves your glory? That's the question you ask here. A peer or God? A thing or God? Whatever, fill in the blank, or God? Our natural fear of man, and I say natural because I think we all have this to a certain degree, must always be sifted and sorted through a healthy fear of the Lord. You have to know who God is if you want to address this in life, much like the other clauses we've looked at. And when that starts happening, you'll start to experience a different type of life. You'll have a... a uh, a child birthing sensation. Like I talked about earlier, you'll have a moment where something happens, where God permanently marks you in a different way. You'll have a moment when you, when you get clarity in these areas where you can identify a space God worked in your life, where his glory and his wit and his significance brought something to you and permanently changed you in a way that was for his glory and for your good. What do we want? What kind of glory do we want? My encouragement to you is that kind of glory. We want to glorify God in that way. So as we close, ask yourself, you have one question to think about this morning. Obviously, you go where the Lord leads you. But just ask yourself, if you want to know what you glorify in life, start with what you fear. And you are very likely going to find a strong connection between those two things. And do not leave this room without thinking, praying, and processing the next steps the Lord wants you to take as you identify this. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your glory. We have sung about it. We have talked about it. And now I pray, Lord, that in your infinite grace and wisdom, you would etch this reality, this truth, onto our hearts. Help us now, God, in these closing moments to really ask ourselves, guided by you, some very serious questions. Who is it or what is it that we fear in life? who is it or what is it that we glorify in life? Whatever that is, God, I pray that you would remove the blinders from us and let us see objectively what you see in our lives. Lead us to a greater place of peace this morning. The peace you tell us comes when we dwell on the things that are good and excellent and noble and praiseworthy, when we put these things into action. And the most noble and good and praiseworthy thing we have is your son, Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that... Our affections would be cast upon him and you, through your goodness, would show us things about us that maybe we have never even seen before. Lead us, God, to the place you want us to be during this time we have in contemplation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.